Today's scripture reading is from Jonah verses 3 through 10 to 4 through 11. Please read with me the verses in bold. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nathan. Bring you greetings from Pastor Daniel this morning. Our, uh, our Pastor Daniel is actually, a, uh, he's attending the installation of uh, another pastor in our uh, sister church, a church called New Life Fremont. Pa uh, pastor Daniel's been a part of the project to take care of that church and help them find a new pastor, and today that pastor's being installed. And so uh, we're... We miss Daniel, but we're grateful for how God's providing for that church. When I was a boy, I went to church back home in Arizona. And that is where I heard the tale of a man named Jonah. Now, Jonah was a prophet, but that's not why he's remembered. We tell the tale, because in a whale, he nearly was dismembered. <laughs> Quoting from Veggie Tales, 
I did not grow up in Arizona. But that's the part of the story that everybody remembers from back when they went to church in Arizona or Michigan or wherever it was that you went to Sunday school. The story of Jonah and the great fish. And it's true. The book of Jonah is unique amongst the minor prophets in that it's almost entirely narrative. While most of the other minor prophets, Joel and Amos and others like them, primarily record the words of the prophet, the sermons or the speeches or the, or the, uh, the message that the prophet came to give, uh, Jonah, the book of Jonah, tells the story of the prophet Jonah. This is a totally unique. There's portions of some of the other prophets, Hosea and Jeremiah have portions that narrate parts of the prophet's lives that are intended to embody God's message to the people that they're sent to. Um, but Jonah is unique for several reasons. Uh, the most obviously, uh, the most obvious reason story in the scriptures. The second thing that makes Jonah unique is that in spite of how incredibly famous his story is, um, most people forget or have never actually heard the second half of the story. Full disclosure and confession. This past summer, uh, we did Jonah for our VBS at uh, Grace Sacramento. It was amazing. We took a curriculum and that, that was designed for five days, and we cut it down into three days, and what got cut? The parasol, right? <laughs> the plant, right? Because you can't send kids home from VBS that's studying Jonah and have their mom say, how was the story about the whale? And have them say, there's no whale, it was a plant. <laughs> it's not actually the story of Jonah and the great fish. It's the story of Jonah and the incredible storm and the great fish and the shade plant and the hungry worm. And it's that last part, the shade plants and the hungry worms, that, uh, that portion, that episode that I want to talk about today, partially because it's the part that doesn't get remembered that much, and mostly because in it, we see Jonah operating in a dangerous and destructive way. We see Jonah operating with a dangerous and destructive orientation towards God and towards the people around him. That's almost like an infection in his heart that he can't get rid of. And so this morning, I'm going to call that the Jonah syndrome and suggest that it's so insidious and contagious that you might have it and not even know it. So this morning, in our uh, sermon series on the Minor Prophets, uh, Divine Intervention, a sermon on the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 4, this morning, three signs that you might have Jonah syndrome and the missing verse at the end of the book. Jonah syndrome. It was really not too long ago now, although time is moving on, it was the tail end of the uh, COVID lockdown. Our kids, I can't remember if they were back in school or still distance learning, but the Carpenter family, my family, had done a fairly intentional job about establishing a pod, a group of other families that we were having contact with and uh, trying to uh, figure out and control our exposure during COVID. And uh, 
doing our best while trying to do ministry to follow the ever-changing recommendations when our oldest daughter got sick. Exhaustion, uh, a low-grade fever, and then she started to get these sores on her skin. So we sent a picture of the sores from a camera to a doctor at a virtual doctor's appointment, because that's what you do during the pandemic. And she had chicken pox, which isn't supposed to happen anymore, <laughs> let alone in the middle of a coronavirus pandemic. She had chicken pox, and we had done all the things that you're supposed to do so nobody gets chicken pox anymore. She'd been vaccinated as a baby. She'd had the booster shot going into kindergarten, but she had chicken pox. And in my mind, the story of Jonah is a lot like that in the sense that it's a story about a guy who of all people should understand what grace and mercy from God is all about, but he didn't. He should have been overwhelmed by God's mercy. It's a story about how when Jonah defied God and ran the other way, God spared his life and used the powers of nature and creation to do it. He should have been humbled by God's grace and because when Jonah was unworthy and unwilling, God still used him in a way that brought about a revival in a city and saved hundreds of thousands of people. But Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, tells us that when that happened, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Lord, is, it, is not this what I said was, would happen? Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee for Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. Let me give you a definition of Jonah syndrome. It is a heart condition that actually twists and perverts God's mercy and grace into justification for anger and judgment. I made that up. You can't find that anywhere. But <laughs> Jonah syndrome, a heart condition that actually twists and perverts God's mercy and grace into justification for anger and judgment. Can you see that in Jonah's response to God? Can you see that strange twist? I knew you were gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And since everybody knows that Nineveh, our enemy, the, enemy, the capital city of our enemy, deserves what's coming to them. I, Jonah, did everything that I could to prevent Nineveh from avoiding the fate that they deserve. Jonah justifies his disobedience on the basis of God's unreasonable grace. He says, it's pretty twisted. Instead of thinking, or at this point, confessing that he was wrong for running away from God, he almost makes it sound like, see, I was right. I was right. Somebody had to do something, or you were going to forgive Nineveh. And so I did everything I could. Jonah syndrome, a heart condition that actually twists and perverts God's mercy and grace into justification for anger and judgment. Let me, let me just present three signs 
you might be suffering from Jonah syndrome and not even know it. Number one, I find myself resenting God's mercy for others. I have a friend uh, who's I have a friend whose brother-in-law had an affair. And since the discovery of that affair, uh, it's been a hard road for his sister and his sister's family, obviously. Um, They're certainly not done. It's not a story that is completed. But at this point, she has decided to uh, try to forgive him and work on keeping their marriage together. And... The more effort that they put into uh, this project, the more uh, they have discovered that their marriage is closer than ever. They are seeing fruit in that, uh, in that endeavor. Meanwhile, my friend can hardly say this guy's name without muttering profanity about what he deserves for what he did to his sister and how soft she's been on him. He's not wrong. Jonah preaches in Nineveh in chapter 3, which we didn't read this morning, and there's a great revival in the city, and we're told that God relented from the disaster that was coming on them. But when God's anger against Nineveh ends, Jonah's anger continues to burn white hot. Jonah's upset because he thinks God's been soft on sin. This is the brutal Assyrian empire, after all. What is God thinking Now, has Jonah forgotten his own sin and forgiveness? Has he forgotten what God has done for him? Maybe that's a theory. Uh, Has he forgotten that while he was running and denying God's call, God was moving oceans and whales to save him? It's possible, but I think maybe it's more likely that Jonah, like us, has categories for sin. And sinners. And there are sinners, and then there are sinners. And Jonah and you and me are in that first category, right? We're basically good. We make some mistakes. We have a few kinks that we think God's grace can help us work out. While Ninevites and cheating brothers in law are in a different category irredeemable miscreants worthy of destruction. Add your other descriptions here. But God never makes that distinction. Romans 3 says the wages of sin is death. And, and then Romans goes on to say that while we were still sinners, while, uh, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That when we were enemies of God, We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. In the gospel, there's no categories. There's no categories, just sinners, and we all fit. The only way to really understand the glory of God's grace is to realize the depth of your own situation and your own sin and what a desperate situation God saved you from. Return to realizing what you deserve. It's only possible for, are we saying that God's grace is only available for us? It's only possible for me? Or could it be that God's heart is also for Ninevites and cheating brothers-in-law and the category that you've placed there as well?
You might be suffering from Jonah syndrome if one, you find yourself resenting God's mercy for other, or two, I pre-disqualify others from hearing about grace. I pre-disqualify others from hearing about God's grace. In 2016, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America at their national gathering, the General Assembly, voted to pass an overture in which we as a denomination officially repented for racist actions during the American Civil Rights era. It was a time when some denominational leaders and churches in our tradition not only failed to pursue racial, racial reconciliation, but actually led worship services segregated by race, barred African Americans from membership, and black churches from joining the denomination. There were churches in our tradition that had literally pre-decided who would hear the gospel of grace in their sanctuary and who would not. We see this same sort of heart attitude in Jonah's reply to God. In verse 2, it says uh, there, he, he, said, he emphasizes my country. He says, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Jonah has placed a proprietary boundary around who owns the gospel. Jonah can embrace God's grace for his kind of people. He knows that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and steadfast love, all of which he thought would be wrong to waste on those kind of people. Not only are they enemies of God, but he had already decided for them that they would reject God's grace, and they're not interested in the gospel anyway, so why bother? For God to show mercy to Nineveh in Jonah's mind would be for God to betray his promise to his promised people, Israel. But God never suggested in the scripture that his salvation was for Israel alone. In the very beginning, in his promise to Abraham, he says that he is going to be a blessing for every nation. And Jesus was constantly in trouble for talking to Samaritans and women and healing Roman servants and, according to his critics, taking the children's bread and casting it to the dogs. But the miraculous scandal of the gospel from the very beginning of the church is that the message of Christ's life and his death and his resurrection was immediately bigger than Israel. It was the power for salvation for Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female. There was no one who was disqualified from hearing the gospel and responding in repentance and faith and being saved. Is there a group that just isn't worth your bother? Folks of a particular social echelon or political persuasion or sexual identity that you've already decided won't care to hear about God's steadfast love and mercy, his long-suffering, his slow to anger and abounding in love, relenting from disaster. You might have Jonah syndrome if you find yourself resenting God's mercy to others, pre-disqualify 
others from hearing about the gospel or uh, find yourself saying, and we don't say this to ourselves, but we do it, I celebrate salvation, but I bristle at sovereignty. Jonah just couldn't seem to do the kind of math in which salvation for Nineveh was a net gain. He couldn't compute why God would do this. God saving Jonah with the help of a whale, that made sense. He could even calculate how preaching God's judgment in Nineveh might be a positive. Let's tell these people what they deserve. But saving Nineveh, the military capital of the Assyrian Empire, who were pretty confident uh, Jonah probably experienced their violent and inhumane occupation at some point in his life. Like, he has personal reasons uh, to think, what is God thinking? How could his sovereign will be good if this is part of the plan? And of course, we are constantly running those numbers constantly questioning the plan. This is, of course, just another way uh, Jonah is just like us when we want God's grace for ourselves, but we want God's judgment and his justice for others, especially those who have hurt us or someone that we love. That kind of thinking reveals the incredible amount of of self-centeredness and pride that we live in all the time. How else do you presume to think that you would know better than God about what's best for the world? How else could we ever find ourselves in a place where we regularly live celebrating that God saved me, but bristling at uh, that he might choose to show his grace to others who we've already disqualified? And God uncovers this self-centered pettiness of of Jonah's twisted heart, and God uncovers how incredibly small and short-sighted Jonah's knowledge of what actual goodness and justice really was, and God diagnoses Jonah's syndrome by covering him with a plant. It says, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. My friends, if you're taking notes, and this is the only time in the book of Jonah that we're told that Jonah is happy. The literal translation would be that he rejoiced with great joy over a little shade. Was he happy that God saved the pagan sailors whom he had endangered in a terrible torrential storm at sea? We don't know. Happy about being saved from drowning by a great fish? There's no indication. Relieved to be on dry land again after repenting in the belly of a whale? Not so much. And what about the salvation of 120,000 people in Nineveh? When that happens, it literally says that he was angry with a great anger. But when a castor oil plant grew up overnight for a little shade, he rejoiced with great joy. And when a worm ate it the next night and it was dead, he was angry enough to die. When Jonah thinks he knows better than God about justice, about mercy, about the grand scheme of how things are playing out in the world, 
he is looking about as far ahead of himself as the shade of a castor oil plant. Jonah's syndrome, his heart condition that actually twists and perverts God's mercy and grace into justification for his own anger and judgment, made him miserable. He was miserable. He's petty. He's easily upset about unimportant things. And he made, and, and it made him pretty useless in the kingdom of God. Remember, the setting for our, for our passage today is that Jonah has retreated from his life. He's isolated himself from others, from sinners who he sees as less than himself and, are, and people that he feels like are undeserving. And he's made himself a spectator. He's literally sitting in a booth outside of town, watching and hoping that God will punish Nineveh. In Jonah chapter 4, God keeps repeating this question to Jonah. Do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry about a plant? And the book of Jonah ends with a question. He says, uh, should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there were more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. I like that line because he's upset about a plant. He says, you know, we killed a lot of cattle too if we, if we throw fire down on Nineveh. If you care about plants, maybe you care about livestock. But there's no answer. The book of Jonah ends without, like, like there's no, it's almost like there's a missing verse at the end of the book. And, and the suggestion is for, for us to end the book and say, well, how does Jonah answer? The answer to that question might be the most important verse in the book. Does Jonah do well to be angry about God's grace? Here are a few more questions to consider as we deal with our own cases of the Jonah syndrome. Do we treat the gospel like a consumer product for our own personal benefit? Have we set up little booths outside of the culture, content to enjoy God's mercy for ourselves while savoring the misfortunes of our God-alienated neighbors? What makes us glad? What brings you great joy? Are we grateful for God's grace to us and then also delighted about the signs that he's showing grace in the lives of others as well? How do you get there? Well, I think it begins with reflecting on the miraculousness and ridiculousness of your own salvation if you are a Christian. If you are someone who has put your faith in Christ and said, God sent his son in the flesh, and he died in my place to restore me to a relationship with God. That's incredible. For me? That's ridiculous. It begins, I think, with remembering what God's mercy and grace have felt like in your own life, recounting the times when you should have been lost in the storm recounting when you were hard-hearted and yet God took care of the people that took care of you. 
recounting the ways that in spite of yourself, you found yourself in this family or in this church or in this place where God's grace is on display. And then I think, I think at that point, you look around and you see where you're at and you say, therefore, am I sitting in a booth outside of town? Or am I engaged with people who desperately need to know that God is a God of steadfast love and mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love? James Montgomery Boyce says, Jonah was not called to be a spectator any more than Christians are called to be spectators in the world's ills and misfortunes today. He was called to identify with those people and help them as best he could by the grace of God. My friends, this, of course, is exactly what Christ did for us. While the book of Philippians tells us that he was in very nature God set apart from us, he did not grasp and hold on to and say, I will be set apart, but he put on the very nature of a servant, taking on human likeness, and came to identify with us and then lived not just a life of, of humanity, but died a death in our place, so that at his resurrection, at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Friends, this is the good news. This is that character of a long-suffering, slow to anger, uh, merciful God played out in the flesh in our midst.